0: Hey, and welcome once again to the Foundry Church Podcast. My name is Joseph. I'm the worship pastor here at the Foundry Church in Winter Springs, Florida. This is week two of our Easter series this year called The Escaping Goat. Uh, After the first week, we got quite a bit of feedback, uh, more than normal, uh, from people about the message. Uh, The largest chunk of it was very positive. The next largest chunk was confusion. And then the next largest chunk after that was people who didn't really like uh, what Seth had said about uh, the idea of, of atonement and the work of the cross. And uh, there there was enough um, feedback and and sort of discussion afterwards that uh, in the office this week, uh, we felt like it would be a good idea to push pause a little bit on uh, uh, the series as it was originally laid out and to talk through um, atonement and theories of atonement. And so uh, what you're about to hear in this message, uh, Seth goes through nine of the most popular theories. Yes, there are nine. There are actually a lot more than that. uh, But... Uh, over the last two thousand years, there has been a lot of conversation and writing and discussion and arguments and debate about how the cross works about what what mechanism is happening uh, on the cross that enables salvation and the truth is and this is i 'm spoiling the message a little bit here uh, the bible doesn 't clearly say any one of these nine theories that 's why they 're all supported by scripture. And they're all sort of related to the socio-economic, political, cultural times that they were developed in. Uh, So, I don't want to bore you, because, I don't know, Seth might bore you. This might be a boring message for you. Or if you're kind of a Bible nerd like me, you may really, really love this. Either way, we hope that it's encouraging for you. We hope that uh, on the far side of this message, you can have a clearer picture of what you believe about... A particular atonement theory. Anyways, let's get to this message. Hope you enjoy. Good
1: morning. Welcome to the Foundry, whether you're joining us in person or online. I'm so very glad you're here. Uh, I do have a confession to start with this morning, is that um, I dropped the ball in a particular uh, thing I was supposed to do. I was supposed to write a, uh, like a goat joke on the sidewalk as you came in, and I forgot, so let me just tell it to you now so that like, uh, I'm off the hook a little bit. Hopefully, Patty won't yell at me, but um, the joke was going to be this, if you're ready for it. What do you call a goat who dresses up like a clown? A silly Billy, guys. A silly Billy. You're welcome. You're welcome. See? I didn't know if that. W- anyway, so. We are in week two of our, our Easter series called The Escaping Goat. We started last week by looking at like the, um, the Day of Atonement practices uh, by the ancient Hebrew people, more specifically about the ritual of the escaping goat. We, we uh, raised a few questions, made a few observations, and attempted to make some sort of applications. We talked about the connection between the ritual of the scapegoat, along uh, tying that to the story of Joseph, who is this type of Christ, and then we looked at that connection to Jesus as our scapegoat. Code. Um, now, uh, after last week's message, um, I, had, I got some really good feedback. Uh, I, I got—I uh, noticed that this message was creating a fair amount of discussion amongst people. You know, some of you came and said, "Wow, well, I really appreciate that. I really enjoyed that. That was helpful." Some of you said, "You kind of lost me. You were just throwing stuff at me, and you didn't shut up. And like, I don't—you were like all over the place." I get it. I understand that as well. I had somebody say, yeah, I'm not so sure about that. Okay. Yep. I get that. I understand that as well. But the thing that I think uh, I was the most grateful for uh, last week was that there was a lot of you, because I had said, you know, there's some things in here that I wrestle with or things in here that I'm not quite sure about. Because I had mentioned that, there were many of you that said, yeah, me too, but I said, thank, thank you for just acknowledging that that's something that you wrestle with because I wrestle with similar things as well. So I think what I love about you guys and what I love about this place is this freedom to wrestle. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you guys, thank all of you, thank you at home for, for like being a part of this space that allows for some wrestling. Now, here's the thing about wrestling. Hopefully, this will give you a bit of comfort. Um, people have been wrestling with this stuff that we're talking about for thousands of years. They've been wrestling for this stuff for thousands of years, especially when it comes to the issue or the topic of atonement, right? Like, what was the purpose of Jesus on the cross? Did he really have to die? What did his death accomplish? Did God kill Jesus or did man kill Jesus? Or did man do it but God allow it? What does the role of the blood of Jesus play uh, in our salvation? Are we saved by the blood or are we saved by the love of the one whose blood was spilt? Was the death of Jesus plan A or was it plan B or plan C? And what, how we understand that, what does that say about, like, the nature and character of God? Right? Like, there's a lot of stuff in this. So people have been wrestling with this stuff for thousands of years. So because of kind of some of the feedback I got uh, last week, and some of you even, I was super thrilled because some of you were like, man, I've been going back and reading into like the scripture, trying to listen to like other like Bible podcasts, look up commentaries, all this kind of stuff. Uh, our small group talked about this. Like I thought, you know, this this might be a good time to take a minute, like kind of pause like the scapegoat ritual stuff this week and and like observe some of the larger history of wrestling when it comes to the death of Jesus on the cross. Okay, so today that's what I want to do, is like kind of a brief history of the wrestling. Um, I want to look at like how people, the various ways people have understood the death of Jesus on the cross. I want to look at the various scriptures that they use to speak to the significance of the death of Jesus on the cross. Uh, I want to look at some of the various atonement theories, um, And hopefully, for the sake of time and not being completely bored to death, we're going to keep this brief, Uh, but I think this is important, and I think just seeing this and and knowing that all of this is out there and been a part of Christian thought for like 2,000 years, uh, to me has been helpful. It's been super helpful to me, so maybe it will be helpful to you, maybe not, maybe you'll hate it, maybe you love it, I don't know, let's just go. Okay, so... I've organized them by, like, time periods, okay? So one, we're going to get into number one. This is not, like, Seth's thoughts on it. This isn't my first pick. This is just we're going to go in order of how they appeared in Christian thought, okay? Timelines, and keep in mind that these are going to be very broad strokes that we're painting with because we're going to keep it brief because there's several of them, and that's the an easier way to do that, okay? So number one is known as the ransom theory. The ransom theory uh, was brought to us, uh, the theory of atonement, uh, is attributed to the early church father named Origen, somewhere in the late 2nd century. This idea uh, is that basically Jesus died as a ransom sacrifice paid to either God or to Satan, depending on where you stand with this. And so the death of Jesus acts as a payment to satisfy the debt uh, on the souls of humanity that is sin, this sin that we inherited from Adam and Eve, this idea of original sin, and so you're paying this ransom price. So here's some key scriptures for this, Mark 10, 45. for the son of man, even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's another one: First Timothy 2, 5, and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and the mankind, and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time, right? So this is the ransom theory. You actually see this theory played out if you've ever read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Aslan offers himself as the sacrifice in place of Prince Edmund. That's ransom theory, okay? Number two is the recapitulation theory. The recapitulation theory is is uh, attributed to another early church father named Irenaeus. He was writing and teaching this stuff in the second century. So both these come to us from the second century. The word recapitulation means to sum up, to review, or to restate. So the recapitulation theory of atonement would suggest that through the life and death of Jesus on the cross, God is retelling the story of humanity, but as God retells it through Jesus. He is reversing the damages done by Adam and Eve. Where Adam screwed things up by his disobedience, Christ, like, reconciles everything through his obedience. Where, where Adam misses the mark, Christ hits the mark and changes history along with our relationship with God. Key scriptures for this, one of the big ones, Romans 5.18, consequently, just as trespass resulted in condemnation for all, for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Okay, that's two. Number three, we have what's known as the Christian Universalist Theory. The Christian Universalist Theory was believed to have come from the early church father Alex uh, uh, Clement of Alexandria. Uh, this was also in the late second century. This is not like Unitarian Universalism. This is not hu- uh, hum, hum, human, humanist uh, Universalism. Christian Universalist Theory of Atonement is the idea that Jesus died, his death on the cross rescued and atoned all people from the power of sin without exception, okay? Salvation in this view is not saving you from hell, it's simply saving you from sin. And so while some would argue that this might minimize the atonement and the work of Jesus on the cross, the people who support this theory would argue that actually it's the opposite. It expands uh, and and magnifies the the uh, effects of Jesus on the cross, right? So the, this one, along with the other two, all were kicking around in the second century. Okay, key scriptures for this one, universalist, Christian universalist theory. Consequently, uh, look, it's Romans 5.18, which is the same passage that the, ransom, uh, the other theory used as well. Uh, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification life for all people. Here's another one. Oh, that's the same one. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. Here's another verse, Hebrews 2.9. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Here's another one, John 12.47. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. One more here, 1 Timothy 4.10, and this one's a bit weird. This is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially of those who believe. That's a bit peculiar, isn't it? Huh. Okay, so that's Three. Uh, these first three theories are all being taught and shaped and, and spoken in the 2nd century by these early church fathers, all of whom are writing and teaching within 150 years of the death of Jesus. Now, we're going to fast forward a few more centuries to the ninth and 10th century. We've got a couple more here. Number four, this is the satisfaction theory. The satisfaction theory of atonement was introduced by Anselm of Canterbury in the late 11th century. Uh, and essentially what he is trying to do is critique and improve upon the long-standing ransom theory, the thing that came about in the second century. So in this theory, the death of Jesus was to satisfy the justice of God, the idea being that humans owed God honor, but our sin dishonors God, right? God cannot overlook the, 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 um, the offense, and God uh, must make amends here. But only God can truly satisfy God's own honor, Only God can fix the problem and restore God's owner. Therefore, God must become man, that is Jesus, and God's death on the cross through Jesus restores the honor that God had lost through our sin. Right? It is important to keep in mind that when Anselm is writing this, this is like the medieval times. This is not the show, like the actual space, uh, time. Uh, So this is uh, the land of, like, this is the time of feudalism. This is the time where there's kings and queens and lords and peasants, and and you have to maintain the hierarchy, right? If anybody steps out of line, there has to be this kind of swift justice because you have to protect the order because the king is at top and you can't, right? That's how you, you have to protect the honor of the king in this. So that's the moral influence theory. Here's a couple key scriptures for this one. Uh, Key scriptures, yep, let's go to the next one. Oh, sorry, I went to the, I skipped something, didn't I? Yeah, sorry, we weren't on moral influence. You're going to have to go back to satisfaction theory. Verses for satisfaction theory, there weren't, he was using the ransom theory stuff. Next one, okay, moral influence theory. Around the same time as Anselm's satisfaction theory in the 11th century, medieval French theologian Peter Abelard developed the moral influence theory which is basically a response, is a, is a reaction to Anselm's satisfaction theory in the 11th century. The death of Jesus was understood as being uh, intended to influence uh, human morality towards improvement. The theory suggests that the death of Jesus was not about satisfying God's uh, justice, but was rather meant to reveal God's love, which would then draw us into repentance. Key scripture for this, Mark 10.45, which was also used before, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's another one. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So the first three that we see are found in the second century. The next two big ones are found in the 11th century. We're going to fast forward again to the 16th century where we see two more. Number six, governmental theory. The governmental theory of atonement is credited to Hugo, Hugo Gratius in the 16th century. This theory, uh, uh, In this theory, Jesus had to die for our sins. He had to die to take, uh, on the cross to take on our punishment from sin. But this punishment was not the exact punishment that we deserved. And the reason this is called the governmental theory is because the idea is that God sent Jesus to die for the church only. So the church um, exists as like this hiding place from God's punishment. And so by faith, if you're a part of the church, then you can take part in God's salvation. Okay, a couple supporting scriptures here. Hebrews 9.15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Another one, Hebrews 9.22. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Okay? Number seven. This is called penal substitution theory, along with the governmental theory. These guys that were creating and developing and leading the Protestant Reformation introduced us to the idea of penal, substi- penal substitutionary atonement. Okay? This is brought to us by guys like John Calvin and Martin Luther. They developed this idea in the 16th century, and this is a modified version of the satisfaction theory from the 11th century developed by Anselm, right? a theory that was developed under kind of this feudal system, and this is how it all works. But with this one... It has more of a legal framework to it. So Jesus had to die to satisfy God's wrath against human sin. So Jesus is punished, right? He takes the penalty, hence penal, but he takes the penalty that we should be receiving. He is substituted for us, hence penal substitution. So <clears throat> penal substitution, like why it happened this way, is because God had to take care of that sin once and for all, right? So... Because God is love, God substituted Jesus to take care of God's punishment and wrath. This has been one of the most like more dominant theories throughout, you know, like our church world and our church history, despite being like 1,500 years after the death of Jesus, right? This is what the Reformation churches hang their hats on. This is what most evangelical churches hang, hang our hats on, penal substitutionary atonement theory. Uh, what I find kind of interesting about all this is that, you know, this is what I grew up in. If you grew up in a Christian church, Church of Christ, Baptist church, whatever, this was kind of what you were taught, this is what you were handed. Uh, what I find interesting kind of funny about it is that, you know, growing up in this stuff and around the system, I was always a bit weary of, like, other systems of belief. I, I was always a bit weary of, like, do I have it right or I have it right and so I don't need to listen like, or like, uh, uh like look for anything else, whatever, and I remember hearing like warnings about like be mindful of, you know, they talk, people talk about like the emergent church or be mindful of like any sort of like universalism, and now like after a couple of years later getting out of college and all this stuff, and I realize going through this that the thing that I was being warned about is actually the older thing than the thing that I was taught to believe, which is weird, right? Like... So anyways, here's some scriptures that, that support penal substitution theory. Romans 3:25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. There's another one, 1 Peter 2:24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that he might die to sin and live for righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. Hebrews 9:28, so, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So, three in the, first, in the second century, two in the 11th century, two more in the 16th century. Let's fast forward one more time to the 20th century. Number eight, we're almost done, I promise. Hang in there. Number eight is Christus Victor theory. In 1931, Swedish theologian Gustav Allen introduced what's uh, called the Christus-Victor theory of atonement. And basically, this is the ransom theory from the 2nd century, just kind of reiterated, reinterpreted, rather than the death of Jesus on the cross paying off, making a payment to the devil. The death of Jesus is understood to be confronting and providing victory over three, three main things, the power of sin, the power of death, and the power of the devil. So this theory has its roots in the 2nd century, but because it didn't come out until 1931, we're putting it at number 8. This theory is adopted uh, by many modern churches as well today, so there's that. Number 9, last but not least, you have the scapegoat theory. Uh, The scapegoat theory was postulated by Rene Girard in the 20th century. Uh, The idea here being that the death of Jesus is a non-violent form of atonement. That yes, the death of Jesus on the cross, was the physical death, was a, a very violent sort of thing that Jesus went through on our behalf, but this makes the case that the violence was not like God's doing, but rather man's doing. That it wasn't God's wrath that was satisfied on the cross, but man's wrath that was satisfied on the cross. And so Jesus is, is essentially this willing victim. The scapegoat theory of atonement views the death of Jesus on the cross as God's way of overcoming our violence by substituting himself to be the victim of what we might be sacrificing, right? And in doing this, this actually reveals our sin, and in doing this, this reveals the depth of God, the depth of love of God all the more. Now, who's ready for a nap? <laughs> Do we need another dumb goat joke? I, I don't have them. It's next week. Look on the floor out there. Um, so, I know I just, I've thrown a ton of stuff at you, and this is like This is really just the tip of the iceberg. If you didn't catch it all, it's okay. The quiz won't be till next week, so I hope you come prepared. Um, My point in laying out all of this is that knowing this is all out there should, at least in my mind, should clue us into a few things and should point us towards something that I think is really quite important, okay? And and so I want to give you a few observations, and then at the end, we'll kind of point like in a general direction, not towards one of these, just towards a a particular thought. Okay, so number one, why I wanted to do this. I think knowing all this is really helpful because it proves what we said at the beginning, which is that people have been wrestling with this stuff for thousands of years. Been wrestling with this for 2,000 years. So... If you've ever been unsure about what it is you believe, or if you've ever had questions, or if you've ever had doubts, or you're like, "I can't get this to line up," or you've struggled like putting these pieces together of what you think it is that you believe, like you're in good company. <laughs> Give yourself a little bit of a break. People have been wrestling with this for thousands of years. You're amongst friends. Number two. I find it fascinating that starting as early as the second century, you come out of the gate with multiple predominant ways to think about and understand atonement. Since that time, as people, as cultures, as religions have changed, those three dominant views have all been like pushed back against, They've been adapted, they've been uh, reversed, they've been countered, they've been undone, they've been redone, they've been rewritten, they've been added on to. Those ideas have expanded, and, and we only address nine of these various atonement theories. That's not even all of them, right? There's a lot more in this whole discussion, which is to say that there's never really been a consensus on this whole issue, which is to say that what I think is the right One, might be a bit more subjective than it is objective, right? It might be a bit more subjective than I even want to admit or realize. So maybe when it comes to this whole thing, like, maybe we need to, like, take take it down a notch or two. Like, people have been wrestling at this for thousands of years. Number three, they're called theories for a reason, A theory is a speculation based on a perceived interpretation and observation. All these theories are using the same body of Scripture, and yet we still have at least nine different understandings of all this, and several of these theories are using the same Scripture to point in opposite directions. Isn't that what we saw? Right? So maybe which one is right is the wrong question. Maybe us being more concerned about which one is right and how they are wrong is actually an example of scapegoating. Maybe we're the example of scapegoating. We have it right, they're wrong, they're the problem. So maybe when it comes to our approach with Scripture, we need to have like better questions. We need a bigger, better lens through which we're viewing all of this. Number four, I think this is really helpful for us to be mindful of all of this because what all of this does Is that these theories, these ideas that have been passed down through generations, changed, been adjusted, handed from one church to the next, from one generation to the next, these become the glasses that we put on to read the Scripture, that we put on to read into the Scripture, right? These theories, one, multiple, these are the things that are affecting how we approach all of it. So it's good to be aware that we're wearing these glasses, Because these glasses are affecting how we understand the nature and character of God. And how we understand the nature and character of God affects everything else concerning like our life and our faith and how we live our faith in action. Number five, the good news in all of this is that despite all of these various theories, despite what the various theories may or may not teach us about the nature of God, despite not having any sort of consensus about exactly how all of this works, The good news is that underneath all of it, all of the theories have at least one thing in common, and that is that ultimately, it's Jesus who saves. We aren't saved by theories. We're saved by Jesus. So put your hope and confidence in Jesus, not a theory. Even if you believe your theory is the most well-supported, well-documented, laid-out theory case the truth that it is because all the people throughout all the centuries feel the same way about their ideas as I do about mine now let me give you like a thought here that we can maybe take with us that I think we would do well to keep in mind then and, and to me this is helpful whether we're talking about the story of Joseph whether we're talking about how do we read the uh, about the scapegoat ritual whether you're talking about the letters to the churches, whether you're talking about Revelation, the book of Genesis, anytime we're discussing, like, reading or, or talking about Scripture, I think you might find this helpful. Okay? Stay with me here. We're almost done. Number one, Malachi 3.6 says, God says, I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday and today and forever. Right? God is unchanging, God is unchanging. The nature and character of God does not shift. Now, 1 John four sixteen says, And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. So God is unchanging. God is love. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Now, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul gives us a description of love, and if God is love, then this description of love is a description of God. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. This is who God is. And God is unchanging. Maybe we should reread that passage and replace the word love with God to help like that sink in a little bit. Why don't we do that? God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God does not boast. God is not proud. God does not dishonor others. God is not self-seeking, God is not easily angered, God keeps no record of wrong, God does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth, God always protects, God always trusts, God always hopes, God always perseveres, God who is love never fails. This is who God is and God is unchanging and we should know and rely on the love that God has for us. So if any of these theories that I've been handed, if any of these theories that I've been taught or that I've developed on, on my own accord, if any way, if, if they in any way, shape, or form stand in opposition or do not align with this description of God, then it's possible that something is is off. It's possible that maybe we're missing something. It's possible that maybe I have a, a, a less complete picture of who God is. Maybe, maybe I'm the one that's like less, I have the lesser view of who God is. Maybe, maybe this description should be the lens through which we read and understand all the scripture. This lens should be the one through which we read something like the ritual of the scapegoat. How does Understanding God as love in that context and the God who is unchanging and understanding that, how, how does that understanding of God factor into that ritual in the Old Testament? Right? Maybe this should be the lens through which we understand and look towards the meaning of Jesus of, on the cross. What might this understanding of God reveal to us not only about the nature of God but also the nature and purpose of the cross? So much of how we think about God, so much of our perspective, so much of our understanding of Scripture, so much of how we've been taught to read the Scripture and think about the Scripture, so much of how we understand the death of Jesus on the cross will in some way, shape, or form be influenced by one or a couple of these theories. Okay, fine. Great. Now what? Well, I think we would do well to first of all acknowledge that we all have some kind of bias. We all have some sort of lens. We all have some sort of church experience or somebody who told us something that influences how we think about certain things and how we look to God through, and how we pull things out of the scripture. Like we all have things that influence us that way. I think we would also do well to acknowledge that there are other perspectives. Mine is not the only one. Yours is not the only one. The second century early church fathers is not the only one. The 20th century theologians is not the only one. I think we would also do well to work towards, like, attempting to approach Scripture as best we can, free from the tethers of a theory, like, Approach the scripture free from the tether of a theory and let the love of God speak to you as you're reading through it and and understanding it and let God's work work through you in that moment. Set yourself free from the tethers of a particular theory or bias. And I think we would do well to work on our approach to the scripture through this general understanding that God is love and God is unchanging. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy God is not proud, God keeps no record of wrongs, God always protects, God always trusts, God always perseveres, God never fails, right? Like this should be the lens that we use to read and understand the scripture. Because the truth of life, the truth of life and the truth of scripture is that we usually find what we're looking for, don't we? We usually find what we're looking for. If you're looking for an angry, punitive type of God, you will find that. If you're looking for a loving, generous, forgiving God, you will find that. And so maybe the real like gut check of a question here with all this is that usually the thing that we're looking for in God or about God, it might say more about us than it does about God. So what does what I'm looking for reveal about me? Or what does what I'm finding reveal about where I might be at? Because at the end of the day, regardless of your perceptions, perspectives, my perceptions and perspectives, all of the people for the past 2,000 years that have been trying to wrestle and sort through this, their perceptions about who God is, none of that changes who God is. It only changes the way that I interact with him. Here's what I know for certain. Here's what I take comfort in. Here's what allows me, despite any and all of my wrestling, to put my head on the pillow at night and sleep in peace. That God is love. That God is unchanging. And that regardless of exactly how all of this happens, I am not saved by theories. I am saved by Jesus. And with this, As John says, I will know and rely on the love that God has for me.
0: Well, as I said in the intro, I I don't know about you. I find that kind of uh, discussion and conversation really interesting and fun, and I very much enjoyed that message. Um, You may have felt the same way. You may not have felt the same way. My guess is that if you did not enjoy the message, it was either because you just felt like this is a lot, who cares, or uh, you are particularly stuck on one atonement theory and are having a hard time allowing for the possibility that other atonement theories may be equally correct or more correct or as correct as what you believe. And, uh, so I just, I very much appreciated Seth's heart in this message and, um, kind of, kind of landing in this place of going, will we ever know exactly how the death and resurrection of Jesus functions in order to enable salvation? Probably not. Maybe not. But can we have uh, hope and confidence and trust in the fact that the death and resurrection of Jesus does allow for salvation? I think all Christians throughout all of 2,000 years of church history would agree to that, whether or not we agree on the specifics and the details of it. And that to me is a very uh, heartening and encouraging thing. Uh, We hope that it is for you too. Uh, We hope this has been an enjoyable 45 minutes or so for you. And we hope that we will see you again next week here on the Foundry Church Podcast. Have a great week.